This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Oh, good afternoon and welcome to this Edinburgh Book Festival event. I'm Lilius Fraser and I have the great pleasure of introducing Wendy Cope. Um, just while I'm chattering for a few more seconds, this is the chance to take any equipment which beeses, buzzes or beeps or tweets or chirrups or vibrates and if you'd be so kind as to switch it off or to silent. If you're bursting to tweet about the event, perhaps you could do, uh, do that towards the end of the event and after the reading, that would be really kind. Thanks very much. Um, I'm saying that in full knowledge that I have indeed switched my own phone off. I just did mine. And, and Wendy switched hers off. We are pure. Um, I feel very, very foolish, in fact, introducing Wendy as if you didn't know who she was because you're here because you know exactly who she is. You may possibly be here because your friend has said, oh, you'll love this, you've got to come. Um, and people tend to be introduced to Wendy's work uh, by that route as well. You may well remember her from the last reading when she was here a couple of years ago for Two Cures for Love. Um, or you may be a fan right back from making cocoa for Kingsley Amis in, in the later 80s, or Serious Concerns, or If I Don't Know. Um, Wendy Cope is also an anthologist and an editor of, of great distinction and... Uh, particularly Heaven and Earth, 101 Happy Poems, which if you don't have, please do invest for those moments when you would like them. Um, she isn't only recognised by loyal fans such as ourselves, she's also recognised, of course, by an OBE recently, and by the American Academy of Arts and Letters, who gave her the Michael Browd Award for Light Verse. Um, and it is that sense of lightness that I think we tend to love, the light, subtle touch the intense joys and the tiny deep hurts that mean the world to all of us. Um, I'm going to ask Wendy if she'll read now. She's going to read for a while, then she'll take questions from the audience. There'll be a roving mic. We will finish on the dot of 5-2 so that you can get away if you have other events. Or let us run out the door first, but we'll be in the signing tent and Wendy's kindly signing um, as many books as you've brought with you or in fact, as many books as you've bought at the tent, darn it. <laughs> this is an age where poetry publishers need good customers as well as po good poets. Um, I would like to ask you now to, to read, please, Wendy. It'll be the big treat. 61. 61 and on a diet. Will I end up thin or fat when my heart and brain go quiet? 61, and on a diet yet again. My hopes run riot, better life, new start, all that. 61, and on a diet. Will I end up thin or fat? <laughs> now, in this book, um, it's called Family Values, there's quite a few poems about my um, childhood and the people in it, and uh, this is one of them. It's, uh, it's called You're Not Allowed, and it's a form called a pantoum. Some of you will know what this is. Um, you have four lines in each verse, and the second and fourth line of each verse become the first and third line of the next verse, and so on through the poem. And I explain this because, for me, it's much easier to listen to a poem if I know something about the form it's, it's written in. Um, so I hope it helps you listen to this one. You're Not Allowed. You're not allowed to wonder if it's true. She loves you very much, she tells you so. She is the one who knows what's best for you. 
She tells you what to do and where to go. She loves you very much. She tells you so. That's why she's sending you to boarding school. She tells you what to do and where to go, and there is no appeal against her rule. And now she's sending you to boarding school. She'll be upset if you are cross and sad, and there is no appeal against this rule. If mummy is upset, you must be bad. Her children often make her cross and sad, and then she cries. She cries and sulks all day. If mummy is upset, you must be bad. It's no good saying sorry, you must pay. You watch her cry. She cries and sulks all day. You'd make your mother happy if you could. It's no use saying sorry, you must pay. Things will get better if you're very good. You'd make your mother happy if you could. She is the one who knows what's best for you. Things will get better if you're very good. You're not allowed to wonder if it's true. So I went to boarding school when I was seven. And here are some poems about that called Borders. Borders are better than day girls. We never questioned that belief. We were tough. We could survive without our mummies and our daddies, not like feeble day girls. Feeble was our worst insult. Secretly, I knew I was feeble and lived in fear of being teased. Teasing was our word for bullying. The bossy girls picked out the victims, sometimes turning on one of their own. Mostly, it was verbal. Now and then, a cry went up, chase for Trudy Tipple. The girl took flight. The mob pursued its human quarry. I didn't join in. I like to think it wasn't just because I couldn't run. <laughs> Once there was a special party. Every boarder had to invite a day girl. My choice was Susan Bird, a gentle girl. I liked her face. I felt I was doing her an honor. I was willing to be her friend. But nothing came of it. Even though I was a boarder and she a mere day girl, she didn't jump at the chance. I wasn't teased much. The worst time was in my first year because some older girls decided that I used too many long words. I soon learned not to. Look at how I write. <laughs> I hope you can hear me above that traffic. I can hardly hear myself. Can you hear all right at the back? <laughs> Not the ideal place, actually, for a poetry reading, a tent on the main road. <laughs> it gives it choice. Um, this one is called O Come All Ye Faithful. Born the King of Angels. That's the bit drives music teachers round the bend. It's angels, two notes, not a-angels. I fought some battles with that extra note and still get wound up every Christmas. <laughs> Daddy had a different problem with the same hymn. Sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. Heaven, he asserted, is not a city. It should be denizens. <laughs> And that was what he sang. 
It wasn't too embarrassing, but I can't sing the verse without remembering. In recent years, I have paid tribute to his memory by singing, rather quietly, Denizens of Heaven Above. <laughs> My partner said, do you really do that? And I said, yes, I do. And he'd never noticed, so it shows how quiet. <laughs> Uncle Bill. Mummy's working-class relations didn't get invited to dinner or tea, but Uncle Bill dropped in from time to time to see Nana because she was his sister. Hello, Uncle Bill, we'd say, as he passed through the hall on his way to the kitchen or Nana's room. He didn't stay long. When he left, we said goodbye, and that was all we ever saw of Uncle Bill, except that sometimes we'd be on a bus you got on at the back and didn't see the driver. And even though we'd pinged to get off, it went on past our stop until it reached our house. <laughs> we jumped off, my sister and I, and ran along to the driver's cab. Uncle Bill, Uncle Bill. He waved back and drove away. <laughs> Grey dawn. We used it every day when I was growing up. The name stamped on the back is Grey Dawn, all one word. It isn't grey, it's blue. I made this point quite often. Why do they call it grey? The grown-ups didn't know and tired of the question. I still wonder. There are three plates left, medium-sized pudding plates, all the rest Dinner and cheese plates, soup bowls have disappeared like the people who used them. Mummy, Daddy, Nana sitting round the dining room table and I have spun through the air into the future all by myself with three of our blue plates. Moved house recently and I discovered I've also got a Grey Dawn milk jug and I'm glad I didn't know that when I wrote the poem. <laughs> But as any of you, you Grey Dawn, it was, it was ubiquitous in the 1950s. This doesn't, I thought there might be some people here who, yeah, <laughs> who had it at home as well. Right, now as well as those poems about my childhood, there's quite a few about ageing and death. This one is called Once I'm Dead. You came to my reading, I think it was going to be funny, didn't you? <laughs> Right, once I'm dead, this one isn't funny, but some of the ones later on are. Once I'm dead. Once I'm dead, I won't mind being dead. Why worry? I don't want to say goodbye to everything, to me, the voice that said, once I'm dead, I won't mind being dead. The words are comforting, but still I dread the day that we must part, myself and I. The voice may still be heard when I am dead, but not by me, I will have said goodbye. And continuing in this cheerful vein, the next one is called My Funeral. And <laughs> it's really about things that have annoyed me at other people's funerals, and this is behaviour perhaps some of you will recognise. I hope I can trust you, friends, not to use our relationship as an excuse for an unsolicited ego trip. I have seen enough of them at funerals and they make me cross. 
At this one, though deceased, I aim to be the boss. If you are asked to talk about me for five minutes, please do not go on for eight. There is a strict timetable at the crematorium and nobody wants to be late. If invited to read a poem, just read the bloody poem. If requested to sing a song, just sing it as suggested and don't say anything. Though I will not be there, glancing pointedly at my watch and fixing the speaker with a malevolent stare, remember that this was how I always reacted when I felt that anybody's speech, sermon or poetry reading was becoming too protracted. Yes, I was impatient and intolerant and not always polite. And if there aren't many people at my funeral, it will serve me right. <laughs> Seeing you. Seeing you will make me sad. I want to do it anyway. We can't relive the times we had. Seeing you will make me sad. Perhaps it's wrong, perhaps it's mad, but we will both be dead one day. Seeing you will make me sad. I have to do it anyway. And uh, this poem, this next one, is looking back on that uh, relationship that prompted the poem Seeing You. Um, this is a sonnet, Shakespearean sonnet. Um, and um, the, it's called Macedonia 1987. A little crowd had gathered in the square. We read our poems and they were polite. Then there was dinner in the open air outside the castle, a warm summer night. The local bigwigs lit up their cigars and asked us for a song and straight away you stood. I see you underneath the stars. I hear your voice, I hear it to this day. I too can sing, but I am English, so although I wanted to, I didn't dare. And still, though that was 20 years ago, a male voice singing German takes me there. Bach and Schubert won't let me forget that evening, five days after we first met. Now, towards the back of this book, well, at the back of this book, there's two series of poems that were um, commissioned. A uh, good thing about commissions is, uh, is somebody giving you an idea, really. Um, it gets you away from your normal preoccupations. And I don't say yes to everything, and not every commissioned poem works out well. Um, but this one um, resulted in quite a few poems that I'm happy to have in my book. And it was from the Endelian String Quartet. Um, they're wonderful musicians. They've been together 30 years. And to celebrate their 30th anniversary, I and mean, it's quite something, four people staying together for 30 years. It's difficult enough for two people. <laughs> um, they, uh, to celebrate this anniversary, they wanted to commission a new work. And they asked me if I was interested in writing some poems. And the theme they suggested was the audience. Uh, and if, that was negotiable. But actually, I thought it was a wonderful idea. So the poems are all about different people you might find in the audience at a concert of classical music. And then they commissioned the composer Roxana Panufnik to write the music. Now, these were not a set of songs, obviously, because it's a string quartet. They're spoken, um, some of them in between bits of music and some of them with the music. And usually, 
although not always, but usually I'm the narrator in the concert. So, um, and I say to people, you know, it's really scary because you do a poetry reading like this. I do it on my own. I can't really mess it up for anyone except myself. And I always try and create an informal atmosphere so that, you know, if I knock over my water or something happens, it won't really matter. People will just laugh. But, you know, concerts are kind of hideously formal. And also, you know, you're performing with these kind of top musicians who, uh, well, I don't know, they maybe sometimes play a wrong note, but if they do, no, I mean, it doesn't go wrong. And so there you are, and you've got to count and come in at the right time. And the first time we did it, I can't tell you how terrified I was. And every time, you know, I do, I rehearse it with this horrible tape I've got of it played on a computer. And um, uh, it's gone, it's, it's always gone okay. I mean, one time we left out a whole line, but nobody noticed. And um, uh, I, it's really a nice change from doing poetry readings. And there's two other things. One is, in evening ones, they wear DJs, so I can dress up in a long party dress, which you can't do for poetry readings. And the other is that you have this wonderful thing of, at the end, you know, you go off and you come on and you bow and you get more and more, you know. Shall we do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't do that. But um, I like that bit too. Um, and also, you know, it only lasts 20 minutes. And then in the second half, I, I, I have a seat and listen to them playing Beethoven or Schubert or whatever, which is also, because I mean, I do like chamber music. Anyway, this, this afternoon, I'm going to read you a few of the poems. You won't get the music, I'm afraid, this afternoon. This one is called The Coffer. Now, and also, this poem makes people cough, and please don't worry, please don't be embarrassed. It's my fault. There's a tickle in your throat, and you've hardly heard a note, and you're wishing you were in some other place. In this silent listening crowd, you're the one who'll cough out loud, and you know you're facing imminent disgrace. <laughs> yes, right now you're in a pickle. The unmanageable tickle is a torment, and it's threatening your poise. Can you hold out any longer as the urge to cough grows stronger? Any moment you'll emit a mighty noise. If this bloody piece were shorter, if you had a glass of water, it would help, but there is nothing you can do. Oh, if only you could be safe at home with a CD in an armchair, free to cough the whole way through. <laughs> Do you hear a rallentando? Does this mean the end's at hand? Oh, what a mercy. Yes, they're really signing off. They perform the closing bars, and you thank your lucky stars, and it's over. You have made it. You may cough. <laughs> All right, now, two of the characters in the audience, one, there's this person who thinks the music is, is much too avant-garde, and there's the person who doesn't think the music is nearly avant-garde enough. But this, is, this is the traditionalist. I like a good tune with a regular beat from the days before music went wrong. An old-fashioned melody, catchy and sweet. I like a good tune with a regular beat. These modern composers, they can't write a song. They don't get you tapping your feet. I like a good tune with a regular beat from the days before music went wrong. <laughs> right, that's the traditionalist. Now, this is the radical. And as you may know, the radicals in the poetry world have a very low opinion of me, so I enjoyed writing this one. Sorry. You see, if this happened in a concert, it would be terrible. But in a poetry reading, it doesn't really matter. Okay, is that all right? Yeah. Right. The Radical. 
I've little patience with this kind of thing, this trite, postmodern, easy listening. I hoped for something far more challenging. This isn't avant-garde enough. It really isn't hard enough. It isn't avant-garde enough for me. The point is not to please the bourgeois ear. The good composer is a pioneer whose music very few will want to hear. This isn't cutting edge enough. It isn't off the ledge enough. It isn't cutting edge enough for me. Art should disturb. It's not to make us glad. It isn't to console us when we're sad. It's to remind us that the world is bad. This isn't agonised enough. You're not antagonised enough. It isn't agonised enough for me. And it says, repeat ad lib. It really isn't hard enough. It isn't avant-garde enough. Now, there's also two poems about a couple on their first date. Um, one of the first one is her, and then the other one is him. So, first date, this is her. I said I liked classical music. It wasn't exactly a lie. I hoped he would get the impression that my brow was acceptably high. <laughs> I said I liked classical music. I mentioned Vivaldi and Bach, and he asked me along to this concert. Here we are sitting in the half-dark. I was thrilled to be asked to the concert. I couldn't decide what to wear. I hope I look tastefully sexy. I've done what I can with my hair. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here at this concert. I couldn't care less what they play, but I'm trying my hardest to listen, so I'll have something clever to say. When I glance at his face, it's a picture of rapt concentration. I see he is totally into this music and quite undistracted by me. <laughs> and this is him. She said she liked classical music. I implied I was keen on it too. Though I don't often go to a concert, it wasn't entirely untrue. I looked for a suitable concert, and here we are on our first date. The traffic was dreadful this evening, and I arrived ten minutes late, so we haven't had much time for talking, and I'm a bit nervous. I see she is totally lost in the music and quite undistracted by me. <laughs> in that dress, she is very attractive. The neckline can't fail to intrigue. I mustn't appear too besotted. Perhaps she is out of my league. Where are we? I glance at the programme, but I've put my glasses away. I'd better start paying attention, or else I'll have nothing to say. <laughs> And I'll read you, now most of the poems in the audience, this is the last one I'm going to read of these, um, not the last poem I'm going to read, don't get too hopeful, but the last one of these. Um, they ask, they're mostly quite jolly, but they ask me for a sad one to give the composer scope to write something sad. And actually what she did with this one is very moving. Anyway, this is, an, this is a sonnet, and it's called The Widow. I like this piece. I think you'd like it too. We didn't very often disagree back in the days when I sat here with you and knew that you were coming home with me. This is the future. It arrived so fast. When we were young, it seemed so far away. Our years together vanished like a day at nightfall, sealed forever in the past. I can't give up on music. 
just discard the interest we shared because you died. And so I come to concerts, but it's hard. Tonight I'm doing well. I haven't cried. My head aches. There's a tightness in my throat. And you will never hear another note. Right, that's the last one of that, that series that I'm going to read. Um, the next poem I'm going to read, actually this is one of my favourites in the book, I shouldn't say that probably, but this is, this is about a motorway service area. Um, now, I like motorway service areas, little chefs, travel lodges, airports. On, on, I used to keep very quiet about it because obviously people think it's weird, until I read the work of Alain de Botton, who loves those kind of places too, and who helped me to understand why I like them and to feel okay about it. So I'm now quite unashamed about liking motorway service areas. Um, this poem is, um, has an epigraph from Alain de Botton. Places of transit where we are aware of a particular kind of alienated poetry. The poem is called At Stafford Services. In the Wimpy Bar at Stafford Services, I ask for ketchup. The girl gives me a sachet. She seems nice, so I mention the red plastic tomatoes that used to be on every table in the old days. She has never heard of them. She thinks ketchup on the tables is a good idea. The red plastic tomatoes, the formica tables, in the wimpy bar by Barnhurst bus depot, where I went, aged 13, to smoke, drink coffee and feel sophisticated. It was all so modern, so American, so young, and a safe haven from parents. Fifty years on, I'm sitting in another one, drinking coffee and not smoking. As the light fades, the glass walls turn into mirrors, lending the place an air of glamour. I like it here. I could be in an Edward Hopper painting, a woman travelling alone on business. No one knows anything about me. Perhaps I'm a high-powered executive with a BMW outside in the car park. Or some kind of artist, a poet maybe, scribbling in her notebook. Dreams in a wimpy. I finish my coffee, find my keys, and walk out of the picture. Now I'm going to read you two Valentine poems. One that I wrote more than 20 years ago, and one that I wrote much more recently. They're both in a form called a triolet, which is only eight lines long. Valentine. My heart has made its mind up, and I'm afraid it's you. Whatever you've got lined up, my heart has made its mind up. And if you can't be signed up this year, next year will do. My heart has made its mind up, and I'm afraid it's you. <laughs> well, my heart changed its mind soon after that. <laughs> I'm with somebody quite different. And I've now been with the same man for more than 17 years. Now, some of you will know, when you've been with the same person for a long time, Valentine's Day can come be a bit of a, a burden, right? Um, so... I was asked by the Telegraph to write a Valentine's poem. This was two or three years ago, and I just didn't know if I could, but I managed to come up with this one, which is called Another Valentine. Today we are obliged to be romantic, 
and think of yet another Valentine. We know the rules and we are both pedantic. Today's the day we have to be romantic. Our love is old and sure, not new and frantic. You know I'm yours and I know you are mine. And saying that has made me feel romantic, my dearest love, my darling Valentine. I don't read that one in schools. That's definitely one for the Wrinklies. Um, all right, this is an old love poem, so I'm just reading a few old ones now. Flowers. Some men never think of it. You did. You'd come along and say you'd nearly brought me flowers. <laughs> but something had gone wrong. The shop was closed, or you had doubts. The sort that minds like ours dream up incessantly. You thought I might not want your flowers. It made me smile and hug you then. Now I can only smile. But look, the flowers you nearly brought have lasted all this while. <laughs> Two very short love poems, both about poets. When they ask me who's your favourite poet, I'd better not mention you, though you certainly are my favourite poet, and I like your poems too. <laughs> and this one's called Another Unfortunate Choice. I think I am in love with A.E. Houseman, which puts me in a worse than usual fix. No woman ever stood a chance with Houseman, and he's been dead since 1936. <laughs> Um, how much longer shall I go on reading for? It makes a difference to what I read next. I think I'll skip a few. Oh, do we? No. Well, we want some time for questions, don't we? You don't know how many I was planning to read. I, I can see and I want them all. Uh, OK. Well, I will, I will read this. I'll just read one that I've written too recently to be in the book. Um, this is... Um, the Guardian you know, published some wedding poems um, around the time of the royal wedding. Um, commissioned a whole lot of poets to write a poem about the theme was vows, right? Um, so I certainly wasn't thinking about the royal wedding. In fact, it really wasn't mentioned when this poem was commissioned, um, but it was published that weekend. Anyway, the vows. So what I did, I thought, well, you know, if I was getting married, what could I actually promise? Um, and this is it, a vow. I cannot promise never to be angry. I cannot promise always to be kind. You know what you are taking on, my darling. It's only at the start that love is blind. And yet I'm still the one you want to be with. And you're the one for me, of that I'm sure. You are my closest friend, my favourite person, the lover and the home I've waited for. I cannot promise that I will deserve you from this day on. I hope to pass that test. I love you and I want to make you happy. I promise I will do my very best. Which it seems to me is all anyone can promise. Really. <laughs> I've had several requests to read that at weddings already, I'm proud to say. <laughs> now, um, there's this... I may have done this last time I was here, but um, there's... 
there's this interesting moment in the life of a published poet when your poems start appearing in school textbooks with questions and exercises. <laughs> and um, I'm going to read you my poem, Bloody Men, and then some questions I found in a school textbook about it. <laughs> bloody men are like bloody buses. You wait for about a year, and as soon as one approaches your stop, two or three others appear. You look at them, flashing their indicators, offering you a ride. You're trying to read the destinations. You haven't much time to decide. If you make a mistake, there is no turning back. Jump off and you'll stand there and gaze while the cars and the taxis and lorries go by and the minutes, the hours, the days. Question one, what does the poet think of men? <laughs> Question two, in what ways do the men she meets flash their indicators? <laughs> and I promise you I didn't make these up. Question three, why is there no turning back? Question four, what will happen if she decides to break up with a man? Question five, what are the cars and the taxis and lorries? Question six, what adjective could you use to describe the poet and the men she meets? <laughs> uh, now here's a poem I nearly didn't put in the book because I read it to an audience of graduating teachers and nobody laughed. And I said to my publishers, look, this will annoy some people, this poem, if it's not even funny. And they said, yes, it is funny, it is funny. So I put it in the book. Teachers like this. I mean, most teachers, but not new teachers. I think they need about 10 years. To... <laughs> it's called Special Needs. Some pupils here have special needs, which must be borne in mind. We monitor them carefully in case they fall behind. The dyslexic, the dyspraxic, and the disinclined. <laughs> Now, the last three poems I'm going to read are from another commission sequence. It was commissioned by the BBC um, because the poet Eleanor Fargen wrote a book, The ABC of the BBC, which was published in 1928 when the BBC was only five years old. And um, a radio producer, I think prompted by um, Eleanor Fargen's literary executor, decided to do a poem using a programme using some of those poems, but he wanted also to have some poems written by a living poet more recently um, so, and sort of weave them together into a programme. So he asked me if I was interested in having a go and I said yes, as long as I don't have to write 26, but of course there wasn't room for 26 in the programme, so that was all right. And I'm going to read you three of them. And the first one is called The Archers and Adultery. <laughs> I like the archers only when it's got adulterous behaviour in the plot. Just when it was becoming one long yawn, they gave us Yippie, Brian and Siobhan. <laughs> I was delighted. I did not care tuppence when smug, kept Jennifer got her comeuppance. <laughs> then there was Ruth's flirtation. Would she do it with Sam? Of course she wouldn't, and I knew it. I said it all along. I had no doubt 
she got to the hotel and bottled out. So now she'll be a good, upstanding wife. Oh no, six episodes a week for life. <laughs> she'll be like all the other archers who like nothing better than a family do, with everyone together, young and old, content to be within the family fold, with no one wishing that they could avoid it and everybody saying they enjoyed it. Yes, in the archers, family values reign. The straying spouses all come back again. Sam disappeared and poor Siobhan is dead and we get problems with the cows instead. <laughs> I listen sometimes doing random checks so I'll know when there's more illicit sex. <laughs> well, actually, that was true when I wrote it, but now I don't listen to the archers at all. Since they killed Nigel, I am boycotting the archers. And Unlike several of my friends, I have not weakened yet. Although, um, actually, a woman, came, a woman who came to a reading of mine a few weeks ago said her mother has been boycotting the archers ever since Grace Archer died. <laughs> that was in 1959. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't really achieved anything, but there you go. Now, the idea with these poems was that they should um, reflect changes technical changes as well you know, and, and, and the producer kept going on about digital and interactive and they did they gave me a digital radio which is great and I wrote a poem sort of in celebration of this digital radio and I showed it to my partner who's also a poet and he said I'm sorry but that one's a clunker he was quite right so I wrote this one which um, the producer which is dedicated to the producer Julian May who's really nice um, and this this satisfied him it's called digital and interactive the producer wants me to write about digital and interactive. I have tried, but I do not find these subjects attractive. There is a gap, and this attempt to bridge it will be all there is on interactive or on digital. <laughs> and I'm going to finish, appropriately enough, with a poem called Close Down. Um, one thing I asked to do while I was working on these poems was to um, be in Broadcasting House that hour between midnight and one o'clock when they close down Radio 4 before they go over to the World Service because I often hear that lying in bed and find it very evocative. So I was, al I was allowed to do that. I spent that hour one night with Alice Arnold in the studio. And so this poem is dedicated to Alice Arnold and it's called Close Down. An almost empty building, someone all alone reads the shipping forecast to a microphone. Listeners in bedrooms, listeners at sea, thousands of them hear her speak invisibly. Hear her through the darkness, hear her say goodnight, picture her alone there, switching off the light. Is it really like that? I asked if I could go and be with the announcer in the studio. And yes, it's really like that. Someone, all alone, reads the shipping forecast to a microphone, speaks into the darkness, says a last goodnight, plays the national anthem, switches off the light. Thank you so much. I, I can hear how many radio babies there are in the audience who are particularly enjoying it. Just before we get light, well, as we get lights up and, and the roving mic for your questions, yes. can I ask you, um, 
Wendy, it sounds as if closed down, that was the moment that stayed with you from that commission, but was there anything else lovely that happened that, that stays in your mind? Such Most of it I did from working at home. Actually, I mean, well, I mean, to tell you the truth, another, I, I was actually, I, I, I like up all night. I mean, quite, because mm. um, I do listen to the radio in the night, and I particularly like Rod Sharp. And so I asked if I could visit, I didn't write a poem about this, but I asked if I could um, visit um, up all night, and I was actually interviewed by Rod Sharp, who's actually, the thing is, you know, he works from America, so I didn't actually get to meet him. But, I mean, we did have a nice chat before the interview, and then we did, we did this interview, and it turns out that he has a copy of one of my anthologies. I, I'm not sure if it's Heaven on Earth or The Funny Side, but he has one with him in the studio, so if there's sort of sudden need to fill some time, he can read a poem. Um, and uh, so he knew, you know, he'd heard of me. And, you know, when you admire someone and it turns out they've heard of you, that's, that's nice. So that was probably the other highlight, other than going, you know, meeting Alice Arnold and doing that close-down thing, was being interviewed by Rod Sharp on Up All Night. But I didn't write do. a poem about it. <laughs> too, too perfect to have a poem written about it, almost. <laughs> yeah. um, can I ask now if, if there's anything that you would like to ask Wendy Cope, because you have the microphone, you have the opportunity, and you have the lady for another s seven minutes. Um, would anyone like to ask anything uh, right now? Lady over there. And can I just ask that you wait for the mic to come to you, otherwise the rest of us are yeah. unable to hear. What, <coughs> what advice would you give a young poet in the family? Right. Um, the advice I would give a young poet is to read as much as... read poems. Um, that's the vital thing. Read the poetry of the past, read the poetry of your own time. Um, and, uh, you know, what really, really winds poets up is meeting people who think they're going to be they can learn to write poetry without reading any poems. So that's... Hmm? Right. Uh, do, do, I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, you, you know, if you're not interested in reading poetry, forget it. I mean, if you're not interested in reading poems, you're not going to be a poet. You're not going to be any good, so forget it. So I would say that, that you know, reading poems is, is, is the most... Is, is that's what I would say. And I've been so very, very good in not plugging the Scottish Poetry oh, right. Library. Please plug it. Please plug the Scottish Poetry Please Library. Please come to the Scottish Poetry Library and you can read as much as you can eat for free. Uh, <laughs> would anyone else, the lady in the green top over here? You do normally use uh, small words, short words. Do you ever get a poem with a big word and then you have to work at it in order to make it more concise? Um... I think sometimes I get... I don't deliberately avoid big words. I don't. But I think a good a question I ask myself, and sometimes editors have had to ask me, would you use that word if you were talking to someone? And um, now, not everyone agrees with this, but a lot of poets do. Um, that, and, of course, you know, um, this was... I was very influenced by the preface to the lyrical ballads when I did for A-level the idea that poetry should employ the language of everyday speech. And I think it is, by and large, a good question to ask yourself if you're writing poems, is would I use that word if I was talking to somebody? Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean you wouldn't use long word. Um, and I don't deliberately not use long words. And I'm interested now, I might look through my books and see if I can find any long words. I can't think of an example right now. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, by and large, you know, the simple word, if there's a simple word that will do it, it's kind of pretentious to use a long, complicated word if there's a simple word that will do it, or a couple of simple words that will do it. 
uh, whether you're talking or writing. And there's a gentleman in a pink lilac top. I would call that okay. lavender. Lavender, I'm sorry. Lavender. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a, a teacher or a, or a poet at, that turned you on to poetry at your boarding school? Or was it later that you um, got into it? It was, it was later, really. Although, I mean, I did have a good English teacher in the, the latter part of my um, secondary school, you know, O-level, A-level. She was a good teacher. And um, I certainly wasn't put off poetry at school, because a lot of people are. Um, so, you know, I did enjoy particularly doing English A-level and the poetry we did for English A-level and she was good and she certainly didn't put me off but at that stage I didn't think about writing poems. I didn't think about writing poems. I used to think when we're doing Keats, you know, Keats is a very good poet for people that age, certainly for girls that age and I used to think how wonderful it would be to marry someone like Keats and, be, and live in a garret and be his soulmate and his muse and all, you know. <laughs> Um, which I didn't, I did not think about, you know, I just didn't think. And uh, that I might like to um, write poetry myself. And much later on in life, when I was in analysis, and I went through a phase of wanting to be a psychoanalyst. And then I thought, no, actually, I don't want to be a psychoanalyst. I want to marry my psychoanalyst. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't want to marry a poet. I want to be, I think girls can get muddled up between what they want to be and what they want to marry. <laughs> but on the whole, it's better to go for what you want to be. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. All right, if, if anyone definitely knows what they want to ask rather than any other, there's a lady in a blue blouse. Hello, that's great. Um, I, a quick question Have you recorded your poems with the chamber orchestra? Is that a No, CD we haven't. Or? We haven't recorded that. Um, and the problem is that. It seems that with, um, with modern music, you know, contemporary music, there's so little market for it that the only way you can get to record it is to sort of finance it yourself. And I can't, you know... Well, I'm not used to financing my own stuff. You know, I don't pay favour to publish my books, um, I'm happy to say. And, um, but we might. I mean, but we'd all have to sort of... We'd all have to be willing to chip in. And, um, I mean, you know me and the quartet and Roxana would all want, have to chip in and get together and get it organised. And, of course, you know, there's no-one else to come along and organise it for us. I don't know if it will ever happen. I mean, there is enough... Roxana, as well as writing the audience, she's also set quite a lot of... I mean, she's written a whole song cycle of, of, of my, my poems, and she's done a lovely Christmas carol, another one. And there is actually just about enough material for a CD. But to organise the recording of it. Of course, you know, you don't think... I mean, you know, I just write my poems and somebody typesets them. But, you know, when there's going to be a string quartet involved and then some different musicians for the other things. So I don't know if it'll ever happen. And I'm sorry about that. Yeah. But if there is an enterprising music publisher in the audience, may we speak to you at, at the yeah. end? Yeah. Um, I think we have time for maybe just one more question. Uh, next hand to go up. There is someone over there. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. It's not really a question, um, it's just a thought about that last one. So many of your poems resonate with, with, with things I was thinking about. And when you, when you were talking about the, the chamber orchestra, I have just booked tickets to take my one-year-old granddaughter to a concert with a Scottish chamber orchestra. And I'm terrified, because I think, you know, what on earth is she going to do and how are we going to get on? But it, would, it, would that be an idea for, for poems, for, for small children? 
uh, for music to do with, with small children. Um, it, it just seems as if it's an ideal situation. Right. Um, I don't know about one-year-olds. I mean, I wouldn't bring a one-year-old to a poetry reading. Um, uh, I don't know what, what poetry with music for very small children. Yes, I mean, if it was done right, it could, it could work well, yes. I mean, I'm trying to think if there are any examples of, of, of stuff for very small Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean I've written stuff for sort of under fives. Uh, or under, you know, so I've written stuff. I like writing stuff for very small children. I like the challenge of trying to write something that has some literary merit, but using very basic language that you know, small children will be able to deal with it. I like, love doing that. But I don't know about enough about one-year-old children and their development, really. I'm sorry. I'm not being very helpful. It sounds like you may have a good idea there. But I'm not sure that I've got much to contribute on the subject. No, I think that's an absolutely charming idea. And perhaps you could just try reading the child a series of poems and see which he or she responds to most. <laughs> We'd be glad to help. I'm, I'm awfully sorry. We will have to stop now. And do allow us a moment to go over to the signing tent. And then please do come over after us. But I'd just like to say on your behalf as well, thank you very much. Thank you for your listening. And thank you very much to Wendy Cope for that great pleasure. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.